Uh, I don't know about you, but have you ever noticed uh, how the best friendships are forged in the midst of trial? Uh, Have you ever noticed that the best of friendships are uh, made when you're partnering on some worthy task? And what happens is when we're we're going through trial with someone, when we're working on an important project with another person, uh, we discover that when the task is complete, uh, that we've made a friend. Or when we're busy about giving a struggler aid, we, we find out that we're not just helping someone, but that we actually like this person. Why is that? Why does that happen? Why do friendships, why, why are those trials and, um, and projects the nursery for friendships? Why are they the greenhouse? Uh, well, C.S. Lewis, in probably my favorite uh, book that he wrote, it's called The Four Loves. And he take, writes four different chat, four different essays about types of love that we experience as people. And one of them is about friendship. And he writes this about friendship. He says, uh, you will not find a warrior, the poet, the philosopher, or the Christian by staring in his eyes as if he were your mistress. Better to fight beside him, read with him, argue with him, or to pray with him. And what Lewis is saying is that we build friendship best, most effectively, when we're actually doing something together. And this is why meeting over coffee week after week to talk about life is a really bad strategy to build a friendship. We would be much better off going in together on a cause of some sort, like child literacy, or remodeling a home, or playing in a sand volleyball league, working together, studying together. That's where we will really make friends. And you think about really good movies, oftentimes there is a friendship involved. Not nearly as often as there is a romantic relationship in movies, but there are some, there are some movies that have really compelling friendships that are forged in them. One of them is the Shawshank Redemption. You have Andy and Red, and they become great friends because they're going after a great task. They're trying to escape a maximum security prison. And so they become great friends along the way. You've got Lloyd and Harry in Dumb and Dumber. Now, they become great friends. Uh, because they're on their way to Aspen to get Lloyd's crush. You've got Sam and Frodo, Lord of the Rings. They become the best of friends because they're trying to banish the world of this ring. You have Marlon and Dory. They become great friends in Finding Nemo despite Dory's mental challenges. And what's their great mission? Rescuing Nemo. And what you see here in 1 Peter is that we're God's exilic people, that we are in the midst of a great trial, and we've been given a huge project. See, as exiles, we're the minority in a majority culture, and we're promised in verses 6 through 9 that we're going to, have, we're going to face various trials of all kinds. Then in verses 14 to 17, we see our project. Our project is our holiness, and so we're supposed to be holy in all of our conduct. That's what we're about. So we're going to have both the trial and the project. So if Marlon and Dory's task is to find Nemo, if Sam and Frodo's is to destroy the ring, Andy and Red to escape prison, Lloyd and Harry to find the girl in Aspen, ours as Christians is to be holy in our exile. But how's this going to happen? Well, it sure isn't going to happen if we do it alone. And Peter recognized this. Even up till now, even before we hit verses 23, we get little glimpses that he's trying to call us into this community project. 
In verse 3, he, he, he blesses the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, not my Lord Jesus Christ. In the opening line, in verses 2, in the greeting, he doesn't address, address ec, elect exi, in elect exile. He addresses elect exiles, plural. Verse 13, he says he caused us, not me, to be born again in Jesus Christ. Then also in verse 13, he calls us to be obedient children, not an obedient child. This might seem like little small insights into our text up to this point, but we must confess as 21st century Westerners that we're great at individualism. And we're really terrible at the corporate nature of life. But we often read the Bible through this 21st individualic lens. And what we miss is the impact of the plural, the corporate dimension of our faith. We are inherently bad at community and bad at relationships. We misconstrue our faith to be something that's just about me and Jesus. In the previous two sermons that you've heard here from verses 13 to 21, they're very much centered on our relationship with God. They're, they're practical in nature, but they're practical in this vertical relationship. Well, when we get to verses 22 through 25, we'll see that we move from the vertical to the horizontal. This gets practical about our relationships with one another. That's what our text is tonight. And I have two, two points. Uh, we, we have the character of love in verse 22 and the requirement of love in verses 23 through 25. So my, the title of my sermon is, What's Love Got to Do With It? I'm not going to go Tina Turner on you. Um, I thought about having Justin go Tina Turner. The, and maybe you didn't know that that's a song. You should. It's really great. Um, but love actually has everything to do with it. In verse 22, uh, the character of love. I think we'll see four things that characterize love. Let's, let's look at verse 22. They come right out of this. Uh, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Here comes the imperative. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So the first characteristic we see is, is the prior obedience to the truth. Do you see it right there in the beginning? It, 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 it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Well, what, what's the truth he's mentioning here? I think what he's mentioning is, is the call to be holy in all our conduct, to be obedient ch children that we saw in verses 14 to 17. So when we get to the command to love one another in verse 22, loving one another becomes the completion and the extension of our obedience to God to be holy. So we see our vertical relationship with God in verses 14 to 17, and it gets horizontal in verse 22. And for many of us, we've heard these last two sermons about our relationship with God, and we've been compelled to be holy. We've been compelled to live principled, upright lives of integrity. We want to grow in our relationship with God. If you were to make your New Year's resolution based on these last two sermons, it would include things like waking up really early to pray, memorizing long passages of Scripture, fighting our besetting sin. But if we're honest, some of us, all these are made for a self-improvement spiritual journey. And for us, many times, the problem with life is that people are a part of life. We find people to be a nuisance. Well, we're not the first Christians to find people to be a nuisance. So, did the, so did the, they did in Corinth, too. 
In the first 12 chapters in Corinth, uh, you see Paul just going after, it's like he's got a laundry list of problems in the church, and he's just going after each one of them time after time after time again. And then in verse 13, chapter 13, he finally gives a solution. It's the famous love chapter, which we did in our confession of sin. And he tells them that if they were to see their life through the lens of, of love, that all those previous problems could be taken care of. But the people in Corinth, what they were great at is they were great at faith. They had lots of money that they were willing to give away. They were willing to sacrifice their bodies. They had a lot of theological knowledge. But in verse thir- chapter 13, he says they gain nothing because they have not love. So is that you? Are you, you mostly concerned about taking your own spiritual temperature Are you most concerned about mapping your own progress in holiness, but you're really unaware of other people's needs? Brothers and sisters, we must allow our desire to be obedient children and be holy as our Father is holy to be bent out in love for others. So this prior obedience to the truth is a key, key part of what it means to be Christian and to love. This love is about something. It's based upon something so much deeper than sentimental sugary, hallmark affection between two human people. The call to prior obedience gives Christian love, it gives it great depth, and it aims our love. So Christian love, what's the characteristic of it? It has prior obedience to holiness. That's the first character. The second is, is sincere. Uh, the, the word used here means to be without pretense, to be genuine. Um, sincerity in our culture, it's a highly sought-after trait in relationships because sincerity isn't clouded with conditions. So to be sincere in your love for another means that you're not loving out of a sense of arm-twisting responsibility. No one's making you do it. You're doing so because you really do delight in the person that you're loving. And we all have this inner antenna, this antenna in our souls that knows when someone is being sincere or not. This is why so many of us, we love dogs. They get excited to see us just because. This is why we love children, because they haven't learned to be insincere. But gospel love must be stripped of duty and obligation and must seek to simply bring delight to the object of our love just because. That's sincerity. The next thing we see in verse 22 is that love is earnest. Love is earnest. Uh, the, the, the word used here in the New Testament, it, it's not used very often. But it's used in this, this odd place, Luke twenty two forty four, 44, and it's talking about the earnestness which, with which Jesus prayed when he began to sweat blood. He was praying so hard that he began to bleed. And this is the kind of love that we're supposed to love one another with. This kind of earnestness, this kind of intensity Yet earnestness calls for so much more than just superficial acts where we sacrifice 15 minutes of our time to someone else. See, earnestness goes way beyond reason. B.B. Uh, Warfield is a really famous Presbyterian theologian uh, from the 19th and 20th centuries. And he taught at Princeton for over 50 years. And he actually grew up here in Lexington. And uh, his, so did his wife, Annie Kincaid. They were married uh, at 25, and they had their honeymoon in Germany. And while they were on their honeymoon in Germany, uh, Annie Kincaid, his wife, uh, she underwent some, some trauma that no one ever talked fully about. She had this nervous disorder that demanded her husband's constant attention. 
And she was pretty much an invalid for the next 40 years. So from the age of 25 to 65, she was an invalid. This was in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And during these 40 years, B.B. Warfield never left his home in Princeton. He never went on a speaking engagement. He never entertained another offer to teach at another place. In fact, he couldn't, he couldn't leave his wife alone for more than two hours at a time. And his colleague uh, said that he had two interests in his life, his work and Mrs. Warfield. Taking care of a spouse who's invalid for 40 years, that's earnestness, friends. And gospel love is fervent, and it's constant, and it's intense. So you see a prior obedience. We see sincerity. We see earnestness. And lastly, we see purity. We're supposed to love one another from a pure heart. And pure here means free from accompanying motives besides love. Um, the affection that we give and brotherly love, it's not joined with these other desires. It's the very opposite of bribery. Uh, bribery is a key tool in my house. Um, recently, Jenna and the baby, we have a four-month-old, and uh, they, they had had a really rough night. I'd woke up in the morning. I got Audrey, our four-year-old, and Eden, our seven-year-old, ready for the day. Seven-year-old had to go to school. The four-year-old was home that day. She just goes to preschool three days a week. And when I left, I thought, oh, man, the baby and Jenna need to sleep as long as humanly possible. But I've got to leave and take Eden to school. So what can I do? H- how can I get Audrey to stay here and be quiet? Well... I told her that if she stayed there and she watched TV and she didn't wake up her mommy and she didn't wake up the baby, that she'd get candy. Now, that, now to you, that might not sound like a big deal. But to a four-year-old who can't stand to be alone, this was huge. Now, she woke up about an hour later and, uh, and Jenna texted me. She said, great job on the bribery. <laughs> so I struck a deal. And we strike deals all the time in our relationships. We say things like, we don't say this, of course, we're too proper for that, but we're really saying in our hearts, if I do this for you, you have to promise to not, never leave me alone. If I do this for you, you have to give me the affirmation to make me feel okay about myself. If I do this for you, you have to give me control in our relationship. You might not use candy, but you use your time, you use your energy, you use your talent, you use your money to get what you want out of people. But the scriptures call us to a pure love that's unhinged from our selfish desires. This is what love tastes like, friends. It tastes pure. It tastes earnest. It tastes sincere. It tastes obedient. And these are the ingredients for how we are to love one another. That's what makes for these real Christian friendships. And if you start loving other Christians like this, like these four things, you'll have a kind of love that supersedes anything that you see in the movies. Because what your friendship is about is so much more weighty and important. Your friendship is about the pursuit of holiness. And here recently, I've seen some remarkable displays of this kind of love in our church. I want to give these examples. I'm not saying names. I'm leaving details out so I don't embarrass folks. But I think this will help us approximate and give handles to what this this kind of love looks like. Uh, Recently, I heard about someone who, uh, who got to their wit's end, and they called... A friend and said, I, I, I need your help in getting my kids to bed. And the person just came over. No questions asked and was glad to do so. Another person recently uh, picked up the tab on a medical bill for someone who's desperately in need. 
No questions asked. They're glad to do so. Another person in our midst, they're walking through life with a, a, a very defiant teenager who's trying to navigate their abusive past. Another person, uh, they, they provided flowers for their neighbor right after a broken relationship. Recently, someone in our midst, they confronted someone about a possible addiction. Why? Because they were, loved one another. And when our relationship is characterized by this love, it, it makes our exile not just tolerable, but it makes it worthwhile. Our hearts were designed to receive this kind of love. It's this kind of love that we desperately long for. And what's even more profound, it's this kind of love that we desperately want to give. But something has to happen in us in order for us to love like this. You should be sitting there. <laughs> you should read verse 22 and be like, dead in the water. You got me. But what happens here, and this happens all throughout the scriptures, is that command and love are right next to each other. But they don't seem to mesh. If something is commanded, then how can it be, cons be considered sincere? But many of us are used to doing things just because we're told. Just because it's the right moral thing to do. But when the Bible commands that we do things from our heart, we scratch our heads and we don't know how to move forward. And the reason is because this is the law. It condemns us. And it condemns us justly. And we need something to set us free. And that's what happens in verses 23 through 25. It's the requirement for love. Look at verses 23 through 25. You see it. It says, since you have been born again, Something has to happen inside of you in order for you to love like this. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, it's glory like the flower of the grass, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So the requirement for love, to love like this, is that something has to happen in our lives. We have to be born again. We have to become new people. But how are we born again? We'll look at the end of verse 25. It says that we become born again through the preached word of the gospel that will never perish, that will never wither, and never fall. The preached word falls on us, and it enables us to love in this new way. But this word, usually when we, when we see word in the Bible, the word for word, <laughs> the word for word in the Bible, isn't, doesn't always mean a single unit of speech. And it doesn't always mean, neither is word always synonymous with the Bible. Oftentimes, word is used as an instrument that God uses to convert us. It means the gospel. And here, it, it, it does mean that. It does mean the gospel. And ultimately, the, the, the word meaning the gospel is Jesus himself. See, John 1.14, famous passage. We'll be, we'll be all over it uh, during the Christmas season. It says this, The word... The word meaning the embodied message of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, Jesus is the eternal word that was preached to us. And it changed us so that loving one another in a sincere, pure and obedient and earnest way, it's possible now. You can love one another this way. Because it's the way that Jesus has loved you. 
Remember how Jesus loved the Samaritan woman? Unlike other men, Jesus didn't seek to use her sexually, but he gave her living water. That's pure love. That's loving from a pure heart, verse 22. Remember how Jesus loved Peter. Peter had just denied him three times, but Jesus ran after him, found him fishing in the boat, and offered him breakfast, and they were reconciled. That's loving earnestly. Remember the, 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 the look of sincerity that he gave the rich young ruler? In Luke 18, you have this, the, the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. The reason he said sell everything you had to give it to the poor is because he knew that what the rich young ruler loved most was his stuff. And the only way that he was going to be in right relationship with Jesus if he was willing to put, put him above his stuff. Well, the rich young ruler, he was unwilling to let go of his stuff. And he walked away. And there's this little line in Luke 18. And it says that Jesus looked at him with sadness. He looked at him with sadness. That's sincerity. There's no pretense. There's no alternative motive in making these demands. Jesus sincerely wanted him to be free from his love of money. And when the rich young ruler didn't want that, it made Jesus sad. And obedient love. Remember when, remember when Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father doing? See, Jesus just didn't love people because he had horizontal humanitarian compassion for people. He treated people the way he did because he was being obedient to the Father. He was only doing what he saw his Father doing. So there was this vertical obedience to his love for people. So Jesus is the one who actually loved this way. And Jesus, this is the way that Jesus has loved you. He came to you like he did the Samaritan woman. He didn't shame you, but he offered you water to quench your soul in a way that sex never could. Jesus pursued you with earnestness over multiple years, and he finally got your attention just like he did Peter's. Jesus looked at you with sincerity when he told you the hard truth about yourself, all because he loved you. Why did Jesus love you in this way? It's because the Father told him to. And now the Jesus who loved you in this way now lives in you and through his spirit will enable you to love others. So now loving one another is no longer law, but it's evidence of your reception of the gospel. And what happens? What you'll find when this, when this love becomes your way of life is that you, you will have your sand. You will have your dory. You will have your red. You will have these life partners for the journey toward holiness. And being in exile doesn't have to be lonely. In fact, companionship for the exilic journey is not a luxury, but it's a necessity. We cannot be faithful and remain alone. We must be the receivers and the givers of this kind of love with one another. So here's my one application of, this whole, of these four verses. Be this kind of friend. Be the one who seeks to obey the command to love one another as opposed to being the one who looks for someone who's obeying this command to love one another, to love you. See, in this, see that there are no conditions in this. Loving one another, there, there's no conditions that say, if, you, if we have a lot in common, then I'll love you. If we're in a similar life stage, then I'll love you. 
If we have the same education and income levels, then I'll love you. If we have the same interests, then I'll love you. It just says love one another and do so with earnestness, obedience, sincerity, and from a pure heart. So don't wait until someone loves you like this. Set your focus on someone else and being ambitious about finding out what their real life needs are and meet them and stick around for the ride. Hop in on their journey for holiness. After all, that's what Jesus did for you. He loved you, he met your need, and he's hopped along for the ride in your journey for holiness. So friends, let's love one another. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this seems way too hard. Uh, Think about loving with an earnestness. Well, 15 minutes sure does sound better. Loving someone from a pure heart, we don't even know what that means. We're always making the sale. We're always doing an exchange of goods. But Lord Jesus, I pray you would move in us. Lord, that we would see you, that you're the one who loved us this way. This was the good news that was preached to us. And this is the way we've become changed. So Lord, would you change us another degree? In Christ's name, amen.